Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I am your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. With me is my co-host, Riley Risto. Hello, Riley. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? All right. It's always good to have you with me, Riley. Likewise. Today, I've been rereading the Gilgamesh epic. This is the oldest story that comes down to us. It is, it's 4,000 years old in its written form. It's older than the Bible. It's older than Homer. And it includes a story like the Noah story in the Bible, and may have actually, which story may have actually been borrowed from the Babylonians into the Bible. The reason I bring this up is the subject of today's podcast, The Hero's Journey, occurred to me from rereading that book. I reread the Gilgamesh in different translations at least a half a dozen times every year. I love it. And so I've been reading several translations over the last couple of days and thought, let's talk about the hero's journey. The hero's journey is an idea that Joseph Campbell came up with, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell. He studied myths from all over the world, different times, different places, found a pattern. The simplest form of that pattern, just three parts. Yeah, it's basically a separation from your ordinary world, followed by an initiation into some kind of special world, and then a return to the ordinary world with the knowledge or what he calls the elixir that you obtained in the special world. Some kind of boon, right? That you bring back. Yeah. And share with others. And share, yeah, to the benefit of all, right? Yeah. Typically the the hero is some kind of leader, right? Whether whether the the hero be a king or a queen. I I should say heroine. There is such a thing as a heroine's journey. The pattern is the same. You don't have to be male to make the hero's journey, right? There's the heroine's journey too, although that's been less well-documented and and only much more recently documented. It works the same way. Well, and I would say in many of these stories, it's the journey itself that creates the king or the heroine or the queen or whatever. It's that, it's that being on the journey that gives them the experience from which other people will then look up to them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Although some start off like Gilgamesh, sure. he's a king, but he's not a very good king. Arthur. Arthur, yeah. So Gilgamesh is actually a tyrannical king until after his hero's journey. And then he comes back with, again, wisdom. And so there's wisdom in this. So this is a lens that Joseph Campbell came up with through which we can read world literature. His critics would say, well, you're just looking at what's the same and you're ignoring what's different, to which I would respond, Right. What's the problem? That is exactly what he's doing. And we can break this journey down into more steps than the three you mentioned, Riley. But then not all steps are always present, which is, again, why maybe not every story fits this pattern exactly. But broadly speaking, you know, if we take things in broad strokes, 
many of the stories that we have and our own lives fit this pattern. Our scriptures fit this pattern. And so that it becomes deeply personal to us. And as a matter of fact, we can see stories where the, the cycle occurs over and over. It's not that your life is one hero's journey. It's not that even your favorite story is one hero's journey. Maybe, but you also may see the cycle begin and end and begin again and end again and begin again and end again. That can happen too. I would say, well, two points to make. One is that the more that the story corresponds to this model that Joseph Campbell outlined, the more it resonates with the audience that's reading it. I mean, you look at Star Wars, which is 100% based on the hero's journey. He, I mean, George Lucas says so explicitly. And this is one of the great stories ever told in film. And it resonates with so many people because it has all of the elements of the hero's journey as outlined, e even in the, min the minutiae, not just the three main categories, but every step along the way is pl it plays out in Star Wars. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not just that the, these stories resonate with us because there are so many other stories like them that are familiar to us, but rather because they are the story of us. And that's one of the reasons why, they're both reasons are why they resonate with us so deeply. Well, and then the second point is that to your point about this being a repetitive pattern-like model, you know, there's part one, there's part two, there's part three. The, the reason why this resonates with us, and we like these, you know, trilogies and book six and book 10, we love this because, again, it's a pattern of our life. You know, as soon as we're done with one journey, you fall right back into the ordinary world again, and you crave the next journey. And that's how growth happens. It's in stages. It's line upon line, so to speak. So we're constantly renewing the hero's journey throughout our lives. I love it. And so it really works to make even a part two and a part three. And what happened with Star Wars? So first, as you pointed out, George Lucas reads Joseph Campbell's book, intentionally writes his story to parallel the hero's journey as written by Joseph Campbell. And by the way, that book is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. There is a book called The Hero's Journey. It is a biography of Joseph Campbell, deliciously told in the hero's journey pattern. But the original book where the pattern shows up is The Hero with a Thousand Faces. So George Lucas writes this story, the original Star Wars movie, the new, what is it, The New Hope? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Episode three, to follow this model. Joseph Campbell rarely went to movies, but after the movies were made, all three of the first movies that George Lucas made, George Lucas invited Joseph Campbell to the Skywalker Ranch, and Joseph Campbell did watch the movies and was delighted. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's go into this. If we can go into more steps than just the basic three, I think the original Star Wars movie, or again, this is how it works. After George Lucas had made so many Star Wars movies, he sold the franchise to Disney for a lot of money. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering at that point, I was wondering how long will it take him to make all that money back? And the answer is one movie. That's all it took. And how did they do it? They copied the original movie. They just changed some names and places and dates and whatnot. And they told the same story and it was a hit all over again. Right. And, and then they took and they, they did screw with the model a little bit and they did the Mandalorian and they've kind of done these offshoot things. They've got the, 
the cartoon version of things. And some of it is faithful to the original story that Lucas wrote, but you know, some of it not so much. And again, it's a money-making enterprise. So that's another, that's a tangent all, all its own, but sure. But the things that have been successful are the ones that essentially just repeated the story again with Ray and whoever else, right? That's right. And the, the pattern isn't always as easy to discern in our stories. I'll give you an example. I had my kids, as a homeschool dad, I had my kids write Beowulf Heroes Journey Papers. I went out on the internet and I searched for what I could find that they might find in addition to sort of controlling their internet access around this writing assignment. I just want to see what was out there. And the answer is nothing. I was pleased. I was surprised too. I was really surprised. I also use this, and I'm not the only one doing this. There's a great book by Christopher Vogler, I think, another Christopher, my namesake, using this to teach. So as an English teacher, teaching composition and rhetoric at Salt Lake Community College, I always use the hero's journey to help my students to write stories, to write fiction. And then, of course, you can bring this into your memoir too, right, to make it more interesting. Again, it's not that you're going to make up anything from your life. It's just that you're going to put it into this pattern or see, maybe I should say, you're going to see how, it, how your life falls into this pattern and show how your life falls into this pattern. So something you bring up there with this idea of pattern and how we might fit stories into the pattern kind of proactively, why would we do that? And you and I are both fans of Mircea Eliade. And the reason he says, Elise Eliade says that we do that is so that the story will be remembered. The, the stories that fit the pattern, the myth of the eternal return, he calls it, are the, are the stories that get remembered. And the stories that don't fit the pattern, they either change to fit the pattern or they disappear from our collective memories. And so the heroes that stick with us over the course of two, three, four hundred years or longer are those that have gone through the steps that fit that pattern that Joseph Campbell kind of itemized and elucidated in detail, but which Eliada also recognized culturally across cultures throughout the world and throughout ancient history. Yeah. And in the case of Gilgamesh, it's two, three, four thousand years, right? Right. So going into the Star Wars story, thinking of the first story, again, if you only know, uh, if you know the the newest version of it better, what's that one called? And I, I don't know what the name of the episode is, but essentially you've got Ray who ends up mirroring Luke. That's right. And the way that he was born on this planet and that, you know, she's kind of like an orphan, like he's an orphan, I think. And Anyway, it's, it's essentially the same type of model that's, that's mirrored. So thinking of Luke, and you can think of Ray, it's the same story. Luke is born in the ordinary world. He's just a poor dirt farmer somewhere in the universe, right? Yeah, Tatooine. Yeah, and he gets the call to adventure. The call to adventure comes, and usually the way the pattern works is the hero rejects the call to adventure. What does he say? I've got chores to do. I can't go off gallivanting all over the universe, you know, or the galaxy. He would love to, by the way. He he wants to, but you know what? My my aunt and uncle are counting on me. I've got chores to do. I can't do that. And so he refuses the call. What happens next? Well, but but how does the call come, right? And this is where the supernatural kind of enters into the realm. And you know, his his trusty little robot sidekick has this secret message from Leia. And out of nowhere shows up this, this mentor type figure that wants to lead him across the threshold. That's trying to convince him that, Hey, this is something you need to do. The whole universe is, 
is leaning on this decision that you, it right. depends on you, you know? Right. You're our only hope is actually what, That's <laughs> is right. what Leia says, right? A new hope. Yeah. So I can't believe I almost skipped that step. A princess in peril. What can be more archetypal than a princess in peril, right? And so he, he does refuse the call and then he runs into a mentor. And this is usually what happens. And the, the mentor shows up in the person of Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi. And oftentimes the mentor will give the hero some kind of talisman. In the case of Star Wars, it's easy, right? It's the lightsaber that belonged to Luke's father. And so at some point you have to leave the ordinary world. And again, with Star Wars, because it's written to follow the pattern, it's so clear, right? It's, you know, to borrow a line from the Matrix, buckle up, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye, right? That's so crazy because you just brought up the Matrix and the Wizard of Oz, both of which are strong heroes' journey templates. You see, I can't help but talk about it this way, right? <laughs> yeah. And so off they go in the Millennium Falcon with this space cowboy. To see right? the wizard. <laughs> they're off to see the wizard and so there's no clearer crossing of the threshold than that right when they burn out of there on the millennium falcon they're gone what happens next is the our hero there's a series of tests that he goes through right or she and and in this case it happens with and with friends and allies right in this case it happens with the friends and allies the princess han solo and Chewie, right? Chewie. And off they go, and they end up at some point in the belly of the beast. Now, how much more clearly can you be in the belly of the beast when not only are you in the depth in the Death Star, you're in the center of the Death Star, yeah, right? Yeah, you fly right through belly. the belly. Middle of it, yeah. That's right. And and you're in this trash compactor. And what's in the trash compactor? Well, there's, there's like a dragon, a monster, right? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And you have to slay the dragon. Right. So it's very, very archetypal story. Well, I mean, if you want to take the story a step further, and obviously this stuff happens over multiple episodes, but eventually he ends up in the worst of worst places. And it happens to be the one place where his master is revealed to him. And it's this it's this off to see the wizard type magician guy that out of nowhere, you know, appears in the swamps after he's wrecked his his airplane or whatever you want to call it, his jet fighter on this abandoned planet and it's it's yoda yoda emerges as his his mentor and imparts to him special knowledge but only through the process of completely breaking him down killing the old luke so that the new luke can reemerge. it's sort of like a resurrection and that's part of the hero's journey right the hero has to die to himself in some way and to be resurrected and then return again right and it's from that point on that he is a different person. He has, you, you can tell he goes from being scared and uncertain about everything to all of a sudden, okay, now, now I'm a Jedi. And I have confidence because he's been reborn as a, as a new creation. And, you know, eventually the, the whole story essentially is that he brings this power to the fore and helps to you know, restore order in the universe through this, you could call it an elixir. It's the force to him, which, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's the spirit. You hear every number of conference talks where they start talking about Star Wars. And I didn't mean conference talks. I meant, I meant sacrament talks. (laughs) Sorry. That's right. You know, and this, this hero at this point, you can see that the hero actually 
sits astride both the special and the ordinary world. The hero is a master of two worlds now. And that's where the hero's journey cycle ends until it begins again. And then it starts again. Yeah, I was going through the first movie and you took us into the trilogy. And that works, right? right? I could have stayed in the first movie. We could have moved into the whole trilogy. Each part of the trilogy is going to have a hero's journey in it. And the trilogy altogether is going to have one. And if you add more movies, I know George Lucas had this in mind the whole time, right? So how do we compare then this pattern that we pick out of Star Wars with other stories, like the stories we find in the scriptures? Well, I know it's sort of cliche to take and talk about Star Wars and then just relate it to the scriptures. That's something that, honestly, I kind of hate when people do it from the pulpit. Well, I don't Um, mean to go with Star Wars. I mean to go with the hero's journey, right? No, of course. And the only reason I bring that up is because it's a story that everyone knows. Even people who aren't familiar with scriptures, they know Star Wars, you know, and I don't know what kind of commentary that is for us, but nevertheless, it is what it is. We all know Star Wars. Yeah, that's why it's my go-to example. And so it's helpful to kind of walk you through the steps using the example that we're all familiar with. But having said that, I could name right now off the top of my head, 20 stories, myths, whatever you want to call them, movies, books, scriptures, whatever, that conform fairly closely to the pattern revealed in the hero's journey. And just to to give kind of a, a brief overview, I can name some right now. There's the Arthurian legends, which has very clear There's, from a biblical standpoint, there's the Adam and Eve story, you know, going from the ordinary world to the special world and crossing the threshold and and the challenges of of evil and, and, you know, the elixir of life, all that stuff. That's there. Riley, in pre-show discussion, you mentioned that the hero, I said the hero always rejects the call in the beginning. You mentioned in pre-show that Joseph Campbell taught that the hero has to accept the call or what's the alternative? Well, yeah, the alternative to to accepting the call is a life of misery. Why is that? Well, because life is meant to be an adventure. Mm. And if you refuse the call to adventure, you're not living life. You're you're living in a permanent state of drudgery of what what could have been. That reminds me of a personal anecdote. I was, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I jumped off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee. And I was the last one to do this. I was with a group of people. Now, by the way, the, the first one to do it, didn't go down first and swim and find out what's down there. I wouldn't have been the first. But by the time everyone had safely done it, I thought to myself, if I don't jump off this cliff, I may as well curl up and die. I love it. I'm not alive. I just felt like I had to. And man, was it a rush. Yeah. No, that's a great metaphor. I mean, for me, I really relate to that. I take my kids a couple times a year, we, our whole family goes down to Lake Powell. And of course, the main activity everyone wants to do down there is cliff jumping because you've got a very deep lake in some parts, three, four, five hundred feet deep or whatever that goes straight down sheer walls. There's nothing to hit at the bottom of these, these cliffs that you jump. And, you know, the, there's always that moment where you're standing at the top of a 40, 50 foot cliff going, oh my gosh, I really don't want to do this. But for some reason, you continue to stand there and look at it. And eventually, whether you get talked into it or whether your gumption just comes to a level where you say you have to do it, you jump. And it is a rush. And there's a sense of confidence that comes from that. And it, it translates to other parts of your life. It's that elixir that you can apply and say, well, I did that hard thing. I know I can do this other hard thing. 
And the more that you do these hard things, the more you accept the calls to adventure. Let's compare that to something maybe a little bit safer, if that makes uh, listeners <laughs> nervous. You turned me on to cold showers. The story of Wim Hof, where you got the idea, is he felt deeply depressed after the loss of his wife. He felt that he wasn't alive. And when he first jumped into a freezing cold river, it was so that he could feel alive. And let me tell you, it works. I mean, I come to life. You have that moment when you turn on that cold shower in the morning where you think, I'm going to die. And then you think, man, I'm alive, right? But you take the experience from the last time you did it and you start applying it every time and it just becomes a routine. It becomes your daily experience. And after a while, honestly, that's just the ordinary world. And it's not enough to carry you through your whole life by itself. And so it, as, as valuable as it might have become to you, it's now just part of your daily routine, which is a good thing. But there's something else. There's another threshold to cross. Yeah, there's, an, there's another thing. So what other stories can you think of? Well, to continue on with some of these, these stories, you've got The Matrix, Toy Story, Braveheart. The Truman Show is a great one. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I have. L literally in an ordinary world that's constructed for the benefit of just this one person until he crosses the threshold, which is, again, a literal threshold. He walks upstairs, steps across a threshold into the special world, well, the actual world in his case that he didn't know existed. Right. There's The Wizard of Oz, Highlander, Shawshank Redemption's a great one. Goonies, <laughs> everyone loves the Goonies. And then... Coming back to, to scriptures, you know, I, I've looked at the Book of Mormon in this respect and said, the Lehi-Nephi exodus with their family it has strong hero's journey elements to it. Will you take us through that step by step? Yeah, just, I, I don't know that I can, it, like you said earlier, not every step exists in every story, but there's a lot of them that do exist in this story. And so, I mean, it begins with Lehi and his family in what we'd call the ordinary world, which is Jerusalem. And it's during this reign of, of Jeremiah, it's what, 600 BC or whatever. And there is brewing turmoil, but he is invited. He is called to exit that ordinary world before it, you know, devolves into chaos and ruin. And he answers the call. And the, the supernatural aid, which is a step in this process, comes directly from God and angels. And, you know, it's literally a supernatural invitation to exit the ordinary world and cross the threshold, which he does. They leave behind all their belongings. They cross the threshold of their, their home and leave that all behind and enter into the wilderness, which figuratively or literally, it matters not. It's the same thing. It's this wandering motif that you find throughout scriptures. And it's wandering in the wilderness that is the teacher. And they spend years out there. Before they ever make the great journey across the ocean, there are, there are temptations and trials in the wilderness. So again, this is the repeated motif of the hero's journey. It happens multiple times in the Book of Mormon. And that, that ocean crossing is just another threshold to cross into another world. That's another threshold, right. We're talking three years or whatever that they're wandering around in the wilderness before they cross the ocean, which is the next threshold. And so prior to that, you know, they have their experiences in the wilderness with starvation and, and all kinds of trials. And that's all part of that, that first round hero's journey. And it's the experience of having done that, whether it was, you know, fashioning a, a bow that 
he could go and, you know, kill meat with learning new skills that would give them the confidence to then cross over the ocean. Well, even before that, the invitation to cross over the ocean necessitates the building of a great ship. And there's just invitation after invitation and adventure after adventure. But the the main one that will resonate with most people is the story of, of Nephi and Laban, because it's very clear that the symbols that exist in that story fit very nicely into other stories that are identified by Joseph Campbell, like the Arthurian legends, the sword and the stone. Well, this is, you know, the sword of Laban. And the great treasure is the plates of brass that are coveted and kept by this dragon-like figure in Laban. And the only way he is able to obtain those is by slaying the dragon. It's fascinating to look at from that perspective because it just continues on and on throughout the Book of Mormon. What some people might call the pride cycle, it essentially fits into the hero's journey pattern. So you're thinking of Nephi in this case as the hero. There are other ways we could look at it, right? Each one of the family members has to go through the same ordeal, right? Yeah, they're all in it together. And and some of their individual stories are documented. Right. And yet, yeah, if we do have access to those individual stories, we could look at it through this lens at each one of them. And with some of them, you know, certain aspects come out more clearly. Obviously, Laman and Lemuel are the ones really obviously refusing the call, right? When it first comes. Well, and in a sense, they are the the, the helpers or the companions that accompany Nephi on his adventure. And And just like Han Solo you know, he's sometimes like, Hey, you're crazy. You know, we're not, we're not going to do this, you know? And so there's, there's trials in that respect as well that, that show up in that story. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, you know, having friends and allies, there are also enemies and and those who oppose you, right. And they're to be right. overcome. And that's part of the journey along with your friends and allies to overcome your, your enemies, as it were, those who stand in the way of completing that cycle of gaining, you know, the wisdom that you seek. So the depths of the special world end up being what what is called the abyss. That's like the opposite of the ordinary world. The special world or the underworld, the unknown, the depths of that is kind of identified in the hero's journey as the abyss. And it's in that death-like place that the resurrection shortly thereafter takes place. And it's all in response to your reaction. Okay, so you, you end up in this abyss. What Nephi says, you know, he was harrowed up into the depths of his his soul. He didn't want to kill Laban and all this stuff. And anyway, he does it. He slays the dragon and he obtains the plates. He obtains the sword of Laban, which is sort of like a kingly scepter of, of sorts that marks him as the successor king to Laban. And He's transformed in that. I mean, he's writing about it in the Book of Mormon, chronologically, at least eight years later, is what the what the record says, right? So he's speaking of these things as if in the past, as if they were just happening, but we're talking about a transformation that he recognized in himself. And so he comes back and he brings brings back those scriptures, which are the elixir. Those are the things that preserve the community, is that is that treasure or elixir of life. And it's the first return of many. You know, now that you put it in terms of resurrection, we talked earlier about the hero dying and being reborn. That is a resurrection. We didn't say it that way earlier. We're talking about a resurrection. You can see the life of Jesus of Nazareth fitting this pattern too. And as a matter of fact, since you also mentioned a descent into an abyss, I think of 
every single story of catabasis and anabasis that we've talked about here, right? Whether it's Isis and Osiris, the descent of Inanna, Inanna being the goddess at the time of Gilgamesh, right? In that same context of that oldest story that comes down to us, whether it be, you know, book 11 of the Odyssey, when Odysseus goes to the underworld, you know, to Hades to talk to his father. Same thing in book six of the Aeneid with Aeneas himself going into the underworld. The whole of Dante's comedy, but especially if you think about Canto II of the Inferno, right? There's this descent. And then again, they're seeking wisdom. They gain it. They return with the wisdom. They climb. They achieve a new level, right? And master both worlds. This is the cycle. And so the the whole thing is is a cycle that we have to participate in ourselves. Why do we tell these stories? Why do we why do we read them? Why are we fascinated by these myths? At some point, they're meant to be our story, and we are meant to kind of encapsulate the myth within our own experience. And I think that's why we're fascinated by them. I think so too. And so what does this mean for us? What does the hero's journey mean for Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto and all of us? Yeah, if we think in terms of the, you know, just in our tradition as Latter-day Saints, we can think of the the plan of salvation, as we call it, right? This idea that we we have a first estate, and that's in one world, and we come down, right, into this new world, and we have trials and tribulations, again, just like a hero. Well, and, and think about the call to adventure there, and there's a third of the contingent of heaven that refuses that call and never progresses from their state of perdition. And it's only in accepting the call to adventure, which this life is adventure, this life is experience, only in accepting that call do we grow and experience and, you know, continue to ascend. And if we're lucky in our hero's journey, we find someone like Merlin or Gandalf or Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi to be a spiritual guide. That's part of it too, right? And we find these in many, you know, and of course, the why are these old bearded men, right? And they're not just they're not just men. They're they're stories with women of great wisdom too that we turn to. Obviously in the Bible we have prophetesses. We have prophetesses who know what no men know. And so you get this you get this guide. There's the wizard of Oz. That's right. Yeah you get this guide. You know you have you have the the good witch you could call her of the West, right? And no wait, is it the wicked witch of the West or the East? I can't remember. One of them this the good sister becomes the guide. That's right. So it need not be an old bearded Merlin man or whatever. No, but the but the idea, you know, we associate wisdom with that with that white beard, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, if we if we encounter someone like you know who just came to my mind, Maria Sabina, the shaman, mm-hmm. right, the Mexican shaman, a gray haired woman with much wisdom to share, right, from her experience. So many examples of this. And we find them here and there in our lives. There's not just one, right? There are different guides at different times, at different stages of our journey, or in different cycles. Because again, we don't go through the cycle only once. We can see our whole life as a hero's journey. We can also see, again, just like in the Star Wars example, we can see multiple cycles going through our life. And it helps us to look at this, to to look at our life this way to sort of gauge where we are and to find meaning, right? The the meaning is something that we create. Whatever's happening to us is just whatever's happening to us. It's, you know, and a lot of it's suffering. You know, I think of Viktor Frankl, he said, to live is to suffer, to survive. And this is what I think of as, you know, being the hero 
is to survive, is to find meaning in the suffering. And we do that. We do that. We create that meaning by the way in which we view our experiences, the way we reflect on our experiences. And this is, the, this is what makes us uniquely human, is that we can actually reflect on our experience. We're not just living it. We reflect on it. Well, and that's what that's the role that scriptures play for us. You know, when when we say that we're supposed to liken the Book of Mormon to our times because it was written for our times or whatever, we're really supposed to do that with all stories, with all myths, with all scripture. We're really supposed to liken it to ourselves and say, "Well, what would I do if I were in that position?" And and by doing that, we we are receiving an invitation to make decisions to enter into these adventures, and we can either learn and accept that that call to adventure or we can we can refuse and live in kind of cowardice and boredom and lethargy and and that's not a life worth living so we're constantly invited to grow through descent through death into a new life and become new creatures i'd like to share a personal experience in this regard you know so i was asked well the first time i was asked to interpret i'm a translator I have a lot of experience as a translator. I now I'm an interpreter too, but back then I wasn't. I only had translation experience. The difference is translation is done in writing and you can take your time and you can use a dictionary and interpreting is done either consecutively or real time, what we call simultaneously, right? Simultaneous interpretation. The first time I was asked to do this, I don't think I had enough of humility. I think I had too much hubris. I did have my doubts, but I thought I'll give it a go. Honestly, thinking back, I really did try to refuse the call, but someone was insistent. So I got in there and I tried and I failed and I thought, you're better off with no interpreter than with me as an interpreter. And I, and I bowed out. So years later in grad school, when I get called to be an interpreter in my ward, in a Latter-day Saint ward, I think I've already been down this road. You know, it's, I want to refuse the call, but I had a policy, a personal policy at that time that I would accept any call that was extended to me in church. Someone else alongside me had the same call extended and refused it. What happened next, I could never have expected because I did have this mentor show up. So it turns out in the stake, and I was going to grad school at the time, and I went to grad school at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, which is the top place in the world to learn interpreting. If you want to be a UN interpreter, if that's your goal, that's where you go. And so it turns out that one of the professors there was in my stake and was going to then train me. So by saying yes, I next got, you know, after my first refusal of the call, this time I accepted it, I next got that kind of training. I would have never had it otherwise. Sure. You know, I think we each hit decision points in our life and, and maybe we don't recognize them at the time because we don't have the gift of, of hindsight. but how many times in your life have you looked back at a decision you made just like you did right now and said, had I not done that? And then, and then you think about the negative things that would have persisted or the blessings you would have missed out on by not accepting that call. It's almost like at least an annual experience that you have to accept some kind of call. And by not doing it, you don't even know what you're missing out on. You can only imagine. And I'm hoping that's where this discussion ends up, Riley, is in some sense inspiring us to think about our lives in terms of this lens. It's not the only lens. It's not the only way to do it, but it can be helpful. And, and it often 
works. I mean, again, not all the steps are always present in every story, including our own, but in broad strokes, this is the story of our lives, this hero, this hero's journey. And so it can help us to, to look at it that way and to think about that question you brought up, Riley, at what happens next if I accept this call, if I refuse this call, or looking back so that we can gain insight from the past to help us to make better decisions in the future. Like I'm, I'm staring at a, a decision right now. It's, it's not a life alter. I mean, it's life altering, but it's not a life killing decision. It's like, it won't, it's not a make or break type of decision, but it's the kind of decision that could have, you know, a very strong bearing or influence on the future direction of my life. Maybe even generationally. I, again, it's not make or break. It's very easy for me to talk myself out of doing it. And we all try to refuse the call. But it makes me, you know, it makes me want to live with a little bit more courage in this respect and just say, wing it. It's not going to kill me if it doesn't work out exactly how it's supposed to. And there's probably something I learn along the way anyway. Well, are you going to tell us any more about it? Oh, it's a business opportunity. You know, I have a chance to buy a business. I had many chances to buy businesses, started businesses. I've, I've exited businesses, but this one is like, okay, it could be great. It could be a decent sized risk. Who knows? So you just have to weigh all the pros and cons and, and make a decision. But it shouldn't be a decision that is colored by any sense of cowardice. Being brave about making decisions after having gathered all the useful information that you can, that's the mark of someone who's living. And there's no other way, right? Because you can't know all the answers in advance. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? If you're not willing to take a chance, and it, and it sounds like you're taking calculated risks, Right, but but there ultimately there has to be some kind of risk. We have to be willing to step forward, as it were, in the darkness in an act of faith. Faith is really acting in the present for the sake of an envisioned future. There's a completely secular philosophical definition of faith. Right, it matches hopefully the one you already had, maybe more religious. Again, acting in the present for the sake of an envisioned future. We've been told that faith is a principle of action. So there it is. You act now. Because you think, if I act this way, this is what will happen. And maybe you're wrong. Maybe it doesn't happen that way. But welcome to the next adventure when it goes another way. Yeah, and that's the part you just, you can never anticipate. But like you said, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You really will never find out unless you step across the threshold. So yeah, it's on my mind. It's a tough decision, but it's one that I think, you know, if I go a certain direction, it could really turn out great. So we'll see. So Christopher, there's another way in which we can use this template of the hero's journey personally, not just recognizing it in stories that are told historically or in literature or whatever, but but using it as a tool for, for our own lives to guide our lives. Yeah, I've already pointed out that we can see the hero's journey occurring in our lives, but maybe there's a way in which we can look forward through this lens. And maybe it's helpful if we go into more of the steps, Riley. Again, there are these three basic steps, but there are more steps. We can get more granular. And again, they won't all show up if you look back. But looking forward, you can think about decisions, think about inflection points in your life as they occur or as they're coming up through this lens, thinking about all these steps. And you can envision and maybe even write, right? You can author your own story in this way. It worked for George Lucas. Yeah. So there's this program that Jordan Peterson actually has online. It's called self-authoring. You're familiar with that. Oh yeah. I, I've participated in that as well. I got a friend who introduced it to me a while ago, 
But the, the whole point of self-authoring is to write your own story, to kind of plan it out. And we have no idea what circumstances are going to confront us in the future. However, you can prepare for how you might react to some of this stuff by preemptively writing your story. Yeah. So we've talked on this podcast about premeditatio malorum, the premeditation of evils. This could be a similar exercise, although not from a negative standpoint, from a positive standpoint, although you can consider the possibilities you know, where things could go wrong. But the idea of premeditatio malorum is just to sit down and write what could go wrong and to think of all the things that could go wrong. And then, of course, to prepare for them, right? To what is going to be my response to that? You can upgrade those answers. I was doing a guided meditation with Jay Shetty, the author of Think Like a Monk, through his genius program. There's an app for your iPhone or whatever. And so he takes you through this, this exercise of identifying, you know, maybe I'm tired. Okay, then how do you upgrade that? I'm tired and I'm going to go to bed early tonight. Or man, I'm so stressed. I, I, I need a break. I've got too much going on and I'm going to take some time off this weekend. No, I love it. This feels like a very contemplative approach, like where the whole idea behind pre-meditation is to meditate on something before it happens. And so let's let's do this, Chris. What if I outline categorically the steps throughout the hero's journey? I'll just name them. As the listener is following along, think about a scenario. Maybe they're facing one right now. Maybe there's maybe it's one they're just imagining could happen in their future. It could be family, it could be business. It could be just a life adventure. And take that scenario and fit it into these steps and then author a future outcome for yourself. That By, that, by doing that, we're, we're sort of preparing ourselves for what could happen and putting ourselves in a position to respond when it actually does happen. Does that work? I like it. Okay. So Hero's Journey has the three main sections, I guess you'd call them. There's separation, initiation, and return. But those are broken down further into a dozen different steps. So the first step is the ordinary world. It's just a recognition that the world you're in right now is what it is, seeing your surroundings and your environment for what they are right now. Now, you may be satisfied, you may be dissatisfied, but nevertheless, this is your current state of affairs. This is the ordinary world. And along comes this circumstance. And it could come from anywhere, but it's a call to adventure. And this call to adventure is asking or pulling you out of the ordinary world. It's going to require you to take an uncomfortable step. Stepping out of your comfort zone in some way, sense, shape, or form, right? Right. Big or small. Right. And we all react fairly predictably the same way when we receive these calls to adventure or moving out of our comfort zone. No, I don't know we about think that. Of <laughs> I, I think most people are predictable this way. No, I mean, that's our reaction. I don't know oh, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We we have a tendency as our first reaction to refuse the call. Yes. We're like, no, I've got so much going on. You know, I've got this, this, and this. That's not really my thing. I don't feel comfortable with that. I know nothing about or it. I don't know how to interpret. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So we come up with all the reasons why we shouldn't do it. Maybe even I tried that before and it didn't work, right? Which is a perfect excuse for a mentor to step in. And that's, and that's the fourth step. Yeah, it's, it's meeting the mentor. That mentor only steps in when we step forth, right? To at least explore. Right. When the pupil is ready, the master will appear. And the pupil yeah. is ready not because she knows everything she needs to know, but because she recognizes she doesn't. 
Well, and in some sense, there's there's a, a proactive nature about the mentor that sees something in the pupil and says, oh, if only you can see what I see. Yes. You know, and she says to the pupil, look, this is what I see in you. And these are the things that will carry you through and, and get you through the, the struggle that you will inevitably run up against. But that's what a mentor does is sees the things in you that you don't see yourself and tries to pull those out of you and have those become your primary identity instead of some hidden latent potential. Exactly. So that's the fourth step. They meet the mentor and the mentor invites them through persuasion to accept the call instead of refuse the call. And sometimes they do that also by presenting a future vision of, of what happens if you do or don't accept the call. And maybe even that talisman, which can be, again, large or small, just a little something to instill confidence, right? You don't think you can do it, but here, take this magic rabbit's foot, mm. which may, may or may not do anything. Or here's this sword, okay, that could really yeah. come in handy. Whatever the case may be, whether it's substantive or whether it's symbolic, in some sense, the mentor makes some kind of transference of confidence, you know, so the gesture indicates a confidence in us. And, and it's something tangible that we can hold and say, okay, this gives me confidence. I carry with me the confidence of my mentor in this talisman. Well, I'm thinking of numerous stories as, as we're bringing up these topics. I hope listeners too. Like to me, Dickens, a Christmas story, you know, where the, the mentor brings them through what would happen if you refuse this call and, and then basically scares them into saying, oh, I, I just have to do it. You know, this is the future if I don't do it. And there's the future if I do it. That's even more clearly an example of premeditatio malorum, right? These are all the right. bad things that can happen if you don't accept the call. Yeah. Or I think about the movie uh, uh, Inception. Inception. Remember when they have that little top that they spin? And that's the thing that reminds them what is the good and the bad? What's the reality and unreality? And so this talisman that you speak of, it, it, it exists all over in these stories. So that's great. Okay. So that was the fourth step, meeting the mentor. But at, at some point, you are personally responsible for taking the initiative to step fully across the threshold. And so at this point, you've received the call to adventure. You've gone through the steps of refusing the call. You've been convinced through persuasion by a mentor, but you still have to take that step across the threshold and leave the ordinary or comfortable. And so that's the fifth step is to cross the threshold. Now, take that and relate it to any phase of your life or something that you envision yourself at some future time dealing with. What would that threshold be? And would you have the confidence to step across it? Only, I think, if you premeditate upon this, this plan for you, because this plan is going to require a lot. But if you come out the other side, if you're resurrected, there's, there's a great blessing there waiting to be had. Okay. So you cross the threshold, boon, right? Yeah. A a boon, blessing a spiritual, is a boon. Yeah. Elixir, yeah. Right. And so, you know, as we go into the next steps, I think we're going to run into what are going to be the pros, what are going to be the cons, what are going to be the forces that aid us and the forces that impede us. Right. And, and just as the mentor oftentimes will warn you, they'll say, look, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. You will, you will learn and grow and catapult into a new dimension of existence that you never thought you could. So that's, that's the sixth step. It's the tests and the trials. And along the way, you have allies and friends, and you have some people that are your enemies or people pushing against you. And that's all part of the process too. But that's the sixth step is to actually confront the trials. 
Yeah, and you know, we speak of enemies. I feel uncomfortable every time I speak of enemies. Latter-day Peace Studies. Yeah. We don't believe in enemies, right? Yeah. But the, but the fact is that there are people who push back against whatever it is that we're, and sometimes they're the people who are closest to us. If we want to accept that call and become the hero of our own story, this doesn't only make us uncomfortable. It makes other people uncomfortable too, especially the people closest to us. And sometimes they're not enemies. They're worried about us and, or they haven't caught the vision, right? They didn't have the mentor to tell them about it. They just have us. And, and we're, you know, someone close to them and no prophet is accepted in their own country. So they're not going to listen to us. If only that mentor would step in and help us out, right? Maybe that's possible. But the fact is we get pushback from people, sometimes the people who love us the most, they're not enemies. Well, and that's the, that this is a critical step for assuming your autonomy and saying, okay, if it's going to be, it has to be with me. I've got to do it. I'm on my own. I'm, and you know, I, I think about this phrase that is used in the New Testament by Jesus, and I'm not sure how accurate the translation is, but essentially Jesus says those who are unwilling to, to leave their father and mother and their, and hate their brother and sister, they're not worthy of me. And there's a way in which reading that becomes less about, you know, hating your family members and more just about recognizing the limitations. Loving the Savior. Yeah, recognizing the limitations of their understanding of the situation you're in and, and you saying, I'm committed to this path, this way. I see something. Yeah. I can't deny it. I have to go. pursue it. Yeah. Yeah. And only you know, because this is your own soul's journey. Right. Your soul knows. It knows, you know, deep within you, this is the right step to take. And that doesn't make it easy. And you will have, again, you'll, you'll have trials. You'll also have those who stand beside you and walk with you and, and, you know, maybe even carry you. Well, and this journey can be really enjoyable, by the way. It need not be, you know, all drudgery and misery and woe. The, the journey itself is, is just a prelude to the real challenge, which is step seven, approaching the ordeal, the main ordeal, the death. As I look back upon my life, I'm in awe at all the adventures I've lived because I said yes. All the opportunities that presented themselves that I said yes to led me to, and it doesn't mean it was easy, and it doesn't mean there were no losses, but I've gained so much. That's awesome. And I can say the same. I think most people who have lived a certain period of time and been confronted with enough of those decisions would say the same for the most part. No regrets. So the, the adventurer, us, we approach, a, it's almost a new threshold that we need to cross into the underworld, into, if you want to think about it in terms of legends, we're going into the dragon's lair. And that's important because as Joseph Campbell put it, in the cave, you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. I love that quote. Oh, it's just, and, and, and then there's follow your bliss, right? He's telling you what you said earlier, Riley, if you don't accept the call, you will be miserable. Bliss only comes from accepting the call. Right. And ultimately the story of, of Frodo and, and, you know, Lord of the Rings is in the adventure itself. It's not in destroying Mordor or whatever to borrow another popular story that most people know about. It's in that journey. It's the process that he really benefits from the most. Yeah, it's important to remember because sometimes we think it's all about the destination, but it really is about the journey. 
it's this is something that we recognize when we reach the destination. Thinking back at Gilgamesh, he goes searching for the elixir he seeks is eternal life. He's trying to cheat death in some way. And he even finds again this Noah figure, Utanapishtim, who did actually get that. And he's trying to get it for himself. And he actually finds this flower that's then going to give him that. And he, he leaves it aside to go for a swim. And the snake comes along, just like the snake in the garden, right? And eats the flower, sloughs its skin. What Gilgamesh was hoping for himself, the snake takes away. And yet, when Gilgamesh returns to the ordinary world, he returns with the wisdom, not with not with immortality, because that's not in the cards. We're all going to die, right? But with the wisdom that then makes his life different. And that's ultimately what this this adventure needs to do. They need to... They need to go into the abyss for the purpose of the experience, if nothing else. They may come out with all the gold, all the jewels, the magic sword or whatever they're supposed to emerge with after having slain the dragon. But the very purpose of going down, descending into the cave is just as important as what happens upon your exit from the cave and what you come out with. So this is the death and rebirth section of the hero's journey. It's the deepest part of the abyss, and the things that happen there are the things that propel you into the second half of the hero's journey. And so that's step eight, ordeal, death, rebirth, the abyss, and resurrection, essentially. Step nine is the reward of having done that. Now you have the power and the confidence to seize the sword, so to speak, to pull it out of the stone or or pull the scale from the dragon's chest after having slain the dragon or emerging with the the cup, the chalice, the in the Arthurian legends, the Holy Grail, that comes after having descended into the abyss. You then start the road back. And that road back is not just a leisurely stroll. No. There are other challenges along the way, right? What happens, Chris, after you've gone through something that has impacted your life so much and given you so much perspective on life, and you feel like you've gained so much What's the first thing that happens as you start to come back in contact with the ordinary world? So a couple of things can happen, right? You could lack confidence yourself somehow still. We, we somehow manage to do that often, right? Or if you've obtained some kind of wisdom or some kind of elixir and you don't have personal self-doubt, others will doubt you, right? Again, you're returning to your own country. You're still the prophet in their own country. Others have not obtained that same wisdom. They maybe still don't see the vision, right? And so you're going to get some pushback. And it's going to be maybe difficult. There, there may be challenges in being accepted in this new persona, as it were. Well, one of the things that you do have after having gone through the journey that is sort of like an ace in the hole is this elixir. You, you obviously either learn something or gain something just from the process alone not even to speak of whatever physical rewards or tangible rewards you might have come out with, but the experience itself gives you perspective that no one else in the ordinary world has unless they've done a similar journey. And so people will then come to you. And it's possible that you could share that. Absolutely. It's possible you could share that and then they see it, right? Others see it, but it's also possible you share it and they don't and you still get pushback. And so now it's another challenge for you. Well, at that point, after the return is completed, you have atoned for some of the sins of the ordinary world by 
stepping into the extraordinary world or the special world, now you're the master in some respect over that one aspect of having experienced it. Not not over life in general, but when it comes to that realm of experience, you are now the mentor. So does that bring us full circle then? For one round. For one round. And what do we do next time? We We just have to accept another call and go die again. Accept the call. That's where it's at. Remember, in the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. Anything to add, Riley? I love reading the Gnostic Gospels and the the Nag Hammadi Gospels because they're a little more esoteric. They're a little bit more mystical. And one of my favorite things that is talked about in the Gospel of Thomas is this concept of death and resurrection, not as a physical death, but as a spiritual ego type death. This process of dying daily or dying as to yourself to be remade a new creation or a new creature is the whole purpose of life. If we do no more than see in Christ the archetype of resurrection, that should be enough for us to get on that path, get on the way, and recognize that whatever we're doing now is fine. It's ordinary. It carries us through our daily routines and all that stuff. But there will come a point when that part of our life needs to die. And we need to move into the next phase. And it's going to take courage and it takes faith, but we need to do it. That's the purpose of life. What a great discussion. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with me, Riley. It's my pleasure. That was a fun episode. I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to give thanks to the Latter-day Peace Studies team, all volunteers. Thank you, guys. And to invite you also to participate, whether as a volunteer whether in sharing with your friends and family this episode, the podcast in general, our sister podcast, Latter-day Peace Studies Presents, come follow me. And if you'd like to donate, I think there's a way to do that on our website. Yeah, we've got a PayPal link. Tell you, Chris, just as a sidebar, one of the great joys of having done this podcast now, this is episode 81, by the way. One of the great joys of doing this with you and, and with Shiloh initially is hearing feedback. We love to hear how this is received for you. If this has made any impact on you, let us know. If you're sharing it with someone that you love because you think it'll have an impact on them, let us know. If there's something that we can do to make it more effective or something that we should cut out or change, let us know. We love to hear from our listeners. We want your show ideas. We want your feedback. So you can reach us on direct messenger through Facebook Messenger. You can hit us on the Facebook page or the Instagram page. Many ways to reach us. We're pretty Googleable. So yeah, feel free. And thanks to all of you who have reached out and shared your feedback. The quality of the feedback that we get is just incredible. We're so glad you're listening. We're so glad that it makes a difference for you and that you're sharing. Thanks again. Thanks again.